From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hello, everybody. Today I'm here with Joel Mitchell from Australia. As you can see in my window, it's night over here in Brazil, 10 p.m. or more. And she fortunately accepted my invitation. Thank you, Joel, for joining us for today's uh, video. Uh, the idea is going deeper in the psychological world uh, related to safety. I want you please to introduce yourself for our audience and talk a little bit on how you started doing this uh, amazing job that you've been doing with helping me and my, my colleagues in the safety field to, to be better. Thank you, Hugo, and thank you for having me on. Um, it's it's lovely to to be able to chat with you, and um, thanks for, for having a bit of a late night to um to fit in with the uh, <laughs> the big time difference here in Perth in in Western Australia. Um, so I'm I'm an organisational psychologist, um, and that means that I've um, I've done a general undergraduate degree in psychology and then I do a, um, a master's qualification specialising in organisational psychology. Um, and then in Australia, um, we do a further um, what's called a registrar program where you have um, a sort of specialised supervised practice um, for a couple of years and then you become endorsed as an organisational psychologist by the um, by the regulation or registration agency in Australia. So in Australia, the term uh, psychologist is protected by law. Um, so you need to meet certain criteria to be able to call yourself a psychologist and the same for those, those specialist areas um, like organisational psychology or clinical psychology, which is what people typically um, think of when they think of a psychologist. Um, so an organisational psychologist looks at... Um, groups and sort of the way that groups interact um, within an organisational setting um, and essentially looking at, you know, how, how we apply um, psychological research in organisations to optimise different types of performance. Um, so for me, that's about optimising safety outcomes in organisations for, for employees and how we can actually use the, the psychological research and, and other research as well. Um, and how we can apply that in organisations to, to achieve the best um, safety outcomes for people. Um, so my career to get to where I am was a little bit of an unusual pathway, I suppose, but um, it, it's, I think, useful to share so that people know that there's, um, you know, many roads lead to Rome, as they say. Um, so I graduated um, with honours from my undergraduate degree and um, unsurprisingly had quite a difficult time finding anybody who wanted to employ somebody with an undergraduate degree and uh, and no real experience um, in the field anyway. So um, I ended up um, getting a job doing document control um, for a engineering and um, maintenance procurement type company um, and they were working for an oil and gas um, producer here in Western Australia. Um, Altogether, I was with that um, organisation for about five years and I worked in a few different positions in that company and ended up spending the last couple of years in the safety team um, 
as a, I think my role was called behavioural safety advisor. Um, so I did sort of varying things there, including um, implementing a safety culture survey within the organisation. Um, I did some field work with the health and safety representatives. Um, but yeah, sort of lots of lots of different bits and pieces. Um, and at that time, I decided to then um, pursue the master's in organisational psychology. Um, so I did that part-time while I was working. Um, then I was consulting for a couple of years. Um, and so that was to, that was with a safety psychology consulting firm. Um, and that was really working a lot with mining companies um, in the Pilbara region of Western Australia, um, doing a lot of frontline coaching um, with the, um, the frontline leaders, um, behavioural safety observations, um, safety leadership training, that sort of thing. So it was very, um, very field-based focused on that, um, that frontline um, interaction between leaders and their, um, their direct reports and, and looking at how we can improve um, the way that leaders are communicating and engaging with, um, with their direct reports to, to improve safety outcomes for them. Uh, so after a couple of years there, I joined NOPSEMA, which is the, um, the regulator for the offshore petroleum industry, uh, which is a Commonwealth agency here in Australia. Um, so I was the, I was, I was a human factors specialist at NOPSEMA. Um, and in that role, I did a lot of um, advocacy type work. So I wrote a lot of papers about different um, areas of human factors for industry. So how industry can apply these different areas of human factors into their work. And I also did work internal to NOPSEMA to um, help the agency integrate human factors approaches into the way that they would do inspections. In probably the last 18 months, we had a much stronger focus on psychological health and safety and mental health. Uh, and that certainly came to a head last year um, as the, the, the mental health implications of the pandemic became more apparent. Uh, here in Western Australia, a lot of the offshore workforce um, fly into Western Australia from other states. And our West Australian Premier introduced a hard border with other states to prevent uh, COVID from entering the state. Um, so this had a significant impact on those members of the offshore workforce who would fly in from other states in Western Australia in order to get to work. So um, they were experiencing a lot of really significant challenges in relation to the impact that that was having on their home life, um, their mental health. So their organisations obviously want to continue producing and there's a, an energy security component of that as well. Um, so, you know, they, were, they sort of did, I suppose they did their best in, in the situation um, that presented itself and some of them did better than others, um, as they all do. Uh, so, you know, they would do things like offer relocation packages and they would, you know, offer to bring people over and, and pay for them to relocate um, either temporarily or permanently. They could bring their families if they wanted to, um, all of that sort of thing. Um, and some people would take that up, but, you know, that that's not a that's not an option that's, that's available for everybody. Um, you can't just necessarily pick up your entire family and, and move to a different state. You know, you've got um, lots of different considerations uh, to take into account there. So, you know, while we had some people doing that with their families, we had other people who moved over temporarily 
without their families and were literally, you know, sort of had spent six months and hadn't been able to go home to see their families. Um, and we had other people who chose not to do that and chose to basically come into Western Australia and then do a two-week um, isolation in Western Australia before they then went offshore and did their two or three-week stint offshore. Um, so, you know, you've sort of got five or six weeks that they're away from their family um, and depending on the operator, some of that two weeks would actually come out of their R&R period as well. So it was, it, yeah, not a good situation for for a lot of those workers from a mental health perspective. Um, so we started um, working quite closely with um, some of the, uh, the unions that represent the workers um, in the offshore industry. Um, along with uh, the industry, the peak industry body um, here in Australia to uh, try to develop some common practices and some um, approaches that industry could use uh, sort of uniformly to try and address this issue. Um, and so that, you know, that was still ongoing um, when I left and I've, um, so yeah, after nine years with Nopsema, I've joined People Diagnostics as the head of psychological health and safety. Um, so I've been here for a little over a month. <laughs> so I'm I'm pretty new here. Um, we've we've been doing lots of podcasts. So we do the the psych health and safety podcast, um, which is really about trying to help educate people on what we mean when we talk about psychological health and safety um, and try to help organisations see it through a risk management, a hazard identification and risk management framework. I think a lot of organisations think about employee mental health and they think that it's, you know, it's a really specialised field. They think about it from a... Um, a disease recovery perspective and a clinical psychology perspective. Um, but when we can start talking about it in the language of identifying workplace hazards and reducing risk, then that really changes the perspective that people have about psychological health and safety. And it helps them to see as organisations, what are the preventative steps that they can actually put in place um, from things like a job design perspective that they do actually have control of. It's not just an individual and the stuff that they have to deal with um, in their home life, but there's lots that organisations can actually do um, to reduce the impact that their work is having on, on individuals. Uh, so that's really what we're aiming to do with the podcast. Um, and then we've got the, um, the technology platform um, that's our, I guess the main the main thing that we do at People Diagnostics, which is Flourish DX, and that's really designed to help organisations integrate um, this risk based approach to um, to psychological health and safety into their existing safety management system structures, so that it's not an add on. It's not something that they have to remember to do. It's just part of the way that they do their business every day, and it's really helping them to address their OHS obligations as well, um, where we've got those general duties of care. Um, that are required by employers. So that was a fairly long-winded <laughs> description of, of stuff. But um, yeah, that's that's people need to, to know you. And just taking the, the path to, to ask you the, the first question. Um, most of the, the small business and even the, the medium-sized business 
So I guess that only the the bigger companies and industries have a safety, a psychological, a psychologist in their in their role of, of professionals. Usually, in the medium to the small business, this uh, somehow is is taken care of by the safety professional. Uh, I've been in this situation already, uh, kind of situations where you need to uh, investigate an accident or or in this COVID time, you need to try to understand how people are reacting working from home or, and working at the plant, being more exposed and everything. Uh, so what would be your advice uh, for those companies that doesn't have this resource uh, what would be your advice for those safety professions where they can have the minimum uh, idea on what to do or where they can find any uh, like relevant information to do a decent job uh, considering their limitations? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, safety professionals, you know, what, what their job is, is to facilitate the process of hazard identification risk management and identifying control measures. And they do that by drawing in and consulting with the right people. So there's, you know, ask the workforce, that's that's step one, um, you know, and there's there's tools and surveys that, that are available for people to use. Um, there's plenty of different psychosocial hazard identification tools out there. Obviously we've got one within our platform, but there are free tools available as well. Um, so within the Australian government, there's a people at work survey that's uh, recently been published. Um, there's a Copenhagen, I can't remember the rest of the, <laughs> the rest of the name of it, but it's a, it's a Copenhagen um, psychosocial hazard something or other. Um, so there's a number of, of different tools out there. Um, but that, you know, that's only one step of the process. Um, you know, you're getting, getting the workforce involved in identifying those um, hazard categories, I guess, that are the most significant to them. Um, but then the next step is to actually talk to them, get them in a in a workshop or, or in a group to actually talk about what is what do we mean when we're saying that we've got a lot of, of workload or we don't have enough um, autonomy or something like that. Um, we need to actually talk to them and ask them more about that. What's What are the significant um, impacts on workload for this particular work group? Um, and by understanding actually what are the what are the elements of work that are impacting most significantly on something like workload, then that leads us to identify solutions that are going to be more useful rather than giving people something like time management training, which isn't really all that helpful. Well, yeah, okay, I can manage my time, but I've still got more work to do than hours available to do it. So time management isn't actually really going to be helpful there. What I need you to actually do as my employer is to reassign my priorities, um, you know, if, if there's a particular um, aspect of work that's, you know, that I'm needing to do a lot of rework on or that it's, you know, it's causing me an unnecessary volume of really shallow work, um, I need you as my employer to either take that away from me or introduce a different um, work process so that I'm not having to spend as much time doing this you know, largely unnecessary or um, less important work so that I can focus on, on 
the work that's actually valuable and and, and important and and you know what I'm really here to do. Um, so once we can actually drill down into what are those real causes of um, of distress for people at work, um, then that leads us to coming up with solutions that are actually targeted. So you're going to get a much better return on whatever you put into it, whether it's effort, whether it's money. Um, and then it's a matter of drawing in the right professionals to help you implement those solutions. So a lot of the time it's potentially going to be your human resources um, people that you then collaborate with to say, right, this is a job design issue. And what can we, what can we do about this from a, from a job design perspective? Um, do we need to give people better position descriptions that are, that have greater clarity? Um, do we need to have more um, clearly defined boundaries of, of the work that, you know, people are required to do and the work that belongs to somebody else? Um, do we need to upskill our leaders in actually, you know, managing workload better within their team um all, you know all of these types of things are, are different options that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a mental health control measure but they actually are because they prevent exposure to those hazards wow yeah a lot of new stuff for us uh another question joy always uh now that most of the companies have uh, the majority of their workforce working from home in everywhere, mainly here in Brazil as the pandemic is like in the worst situation since last March. Uh, and I pretty much spend most of my day uh, on the phone calling to people and trying to see how they are, what they are feeling and, and kind of putting my ears available to them. Uh, but I don't know if it's enough. So uh, thinking as a safety professional again, uh, how can we be more relevant since we kind of lost our, our you know, our guide that is going to the plant, try to see people over there talking to them. Since they are gone, they are working from home, they are uh, in their houses. Uh, and is there any symptom that we can identify that somebody is needing help? Uh, that can be recognized from uh, a, a call or, or a video conference or something like this? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. And I think, um, you know, we're kind of learning as we go in this space a little bit because, yes, while we have had, um, you know, flexible work and telework um, available for people for a long time, it hasn't been done at this scale. Um, and people have always had still the option to or, or the capacity to have social interaction um, outside of their, their work environment. So even if they were working alone from home, they, they still can go out on an evening and see their friends and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that really um, we know are protective factors for mental health. Um, so... I think that there are a few things um, that come to mind for me when I'm thinking about um, telework in particular, and one of those is the the bleeding of boundaries between work and home, and how easy it is to just keep working when you're at home and you're working at home, um, especially if you're in a business that's you know a global business that 
does have, you know, 24 hour um, work going, you know, where, wherever you are in the globe, there's somebody doing some work somewhere. Um, and, you know, there is that real temptation and possibly even expectation that people are going to be responding to things like emails and phone calls at all times of the day and night. Um, so I think one of the things that that organisations can do is create not only permission but an expectation that people will actually set their own boundaries around this is my work time and this is my home time. And there might be flexibility about how they choose to structure their day um, and that might be around, you know, what works for them, um, where they've got, you know, if they have young children at home and they need to be able to do some homeschooling or that sort of thing. But it's actually about having having um, some structure to help them separate out their work time from their home time. Um, I think that's that's really important because that that's a big contributor to, you know, burnout and just overwhelm. Um, that feeling that you always have to be connected and you always have to be switched on and you need to be seen to be working and, and contributing um, because you're not physically there in the office. So you need to sort of demonstrate by responding to emails and all of that sort of thing that, yes, I'm here and I'm working. Um, but, you know, presenteeism isn't necessarily productive or useful work. Um, so giving people permission to, to have time that's their time and that's not work time, I think is, is a big step and leaders need to demonstrate that themselves as well. So if you've got a leader who's, who's sending you emails at three in the morning, um, that's not setting a great example in having your own home life and, and having those boundaries. So um, yeah, from, from a leader's perspective, you need to do that leading by example and actually setting the standard and saying, yeah, this is my time now um, and I expect that all of you will actually have your own time as well. So it might even be that you share a team calendar of when am I available and when am I not available as, as an example um, to set sort of expectations um, about what's, what's reasonable and what's not. Zoom fatigue is another one, um, you know, where people I think – we're potentially trying to overcompensate for the isolation by having lots and lots of video calls and Zoom meetings. And this is actually preventing people from being able to do their work. So they're, they're always attending these, these Zoom meetings um, and they're literally going from one to the other, to the other, to the other, and they're not having any time for processing in between. Um, they're not having time for those informal chats with colleagues that are so fundamental um, to our ability to actually work effectively. You know, those um, those sort of kitchen chats that we have where we catch up with, with our friends and colleagues about what it is that they're working on. And then you make those connections with, oh, well, you know, I know this other person's working on something similar. Um, and you can sort of start to help pull those di disparate pieces of work actually together. Um, but you're missing out on that when you're when you're working from home, and especially when you're constantly having all of those formal meetings one after another. So, really revisiting, I think, um, do we actually need to have this this Zoom meeting? Do all of these people actually need to be in on it, or can we send out a you know a summary of of what was decided? 
Um, does it need to be a full hour or can it be 20 minutes? Um, you know, and there's lots of different types of online collaboration tools that you can use um, that don't involve a camera in somebody's face <laughs> with, you know, any number of people who can potentially be staring at you and you don't know who it is. Um, so, yes, there's absolutely a, a time and a place for, for Zoom meetings, um, but I think they're probably being overused at the moment and, um, yeah, that, that would be my next suggestion is to um, have a think about using those in a way that's, you know, using them when they're needed but not overusing them. Um, yeah. And the other thing that I would suggest is, you know, setting some time aside, booking some time in the calendar for an informal get-together with your team um, where you're not talking about work, you're just chatting and laughing um, the way that you do in that sort of five or 10 minutes when, when you all, you know, get up and have a cup of tea or whatever. So you're having like your, your virtual afternoon tea, um, your virtual smoko, whatever it is, where you're not really talking about work, but you're just chatting and you're maintaining those, those social relationships. You're having a laugh. That's, that's such an important part of work is just having a laugh with your friends at work. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, another big thing that I think um, a lot of the world is missing when, when they're working in isolation. Wow, that was <laughs> a lot of things that I was thinking about, but I never uh, was able to put in, in, in words. So <laughs> thank you so much. I think it's going to contribute a lot. And, and I have some experience on people telling me, friends from other companies and, and everything, saying that they were working for 16, 17 hours in a row and they are like not uh, safe enough for telling, refusing a, a meeting schedule, like because people can think that they are at home, they are not working, they are doing something different, uh, uh, things that you just mentioned. Uh, and also, uh, we did something that I think is important. We, we asked for employees to lock the lunch time because we have an hour in Brazil for lunch. And, but people, as you said, if you are in a global company, the lunchtime is different uh, around the world. So we we like asked people to lock to block their lunchtime in order to keep it uh, as a lunchtime uh, in, in fact. Uh, and I also suggested them to to lock in the in their schedule some time to work. As you said, you know you need time to process the information you are receiving. You need to find out stuff, you need to read, you need to think about uh, your day and kind of make a call for, you know, uh, somebody. Uh, but people just see it's empty in your schedule and they just schedule something with you like you were obligated to, to attend and, and you can be in trouble and sometimes if you, if you don't, you know. So uh, thank you mm. for giving us a lot of <laughs> good ideas on what to do and and how to deal with this situation that is brand new for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Dr. Richard Clayton has a lot of information on this particular topic as well. Um, so he did talk about this um, during uh, an episode that we um, that we had with him uh, where he was talking about impression management. Um, and what he recommended was putting a four-hour block in your calendar for deep work. Um, and he said that the productivity... Yep. Block oh. out a four hour. Yep. So 
like seven till 11, for example. Um, so you spend your morning just focused on deep work. You turn off your email, um, turn off your, you know, teams or, or whatever other um, internal messaging apps you've got. And you just dedicate that to focused work. And what you'll find is that that will have a significant um, benefit on your productivity and also your stress levels because you're actually able to really um, focus in, um, get in the zone, get into that that sense of flow with your work, and you'll actually be able to achieve and and deliver what it is that you that you need to deliver. So um, that's that's his recommended strategy. Wow. So Joel, uh, another problem that we've been facing, in, at least here in Brazil. Uh, relate to the to the mental uh, health and, and everything is during the uh, after actually uh, uh, undesirable event like a, an accident or something. I wrote a, a paper. Unfortunately, this is in Portuguese, uh, and I reevaluated an accident investigation in two different uh, methodologies. One being the root cause analysis, and the other the learning things that everybody's using for the, the new viewers are using the learning groups and, and everything. And the simple fact that we removed the, the direct boss of the victim or the people involved made them like talk much more and give much more information related to the event, how it ha really happened. And uh, somehow it created the psychological safety for the and the opening and trust in the environment to make them speak up and help us to to understand and to improve the our barrier our defenses uh, so how do you think uh, uh, that we can create this kind of situation kind of environment uh, without having an accident as the trigger you know so because uh, one friend uh, actually one friend just told me today, you know, the safety field is getting uh, old and uh, old fashioned because we just learn when something bad and big happens. So uh, is there an opportunity for us, I guess, to learn from normal work to regular days? And I, I want to hear your opinion on this, please. Yeah, I think um, the, the, you know, learning from um learning from work as done um, is obviously a, um, a big talking point at the moment in, in the safety profession. Um, and I think that that's definitely a, um, a useful approach um, for safety practitioners to take. And for that to be successful, um, yes, you're right, it comes down to people feeling safe to be able to go about doing work the way that they'd normally do it. Um, and if there's the safety guy there who's normally writing them up for, you know, breaching their procedures, um, then that's, you know, potentially going to be a challenge where you're, you're potentially not actually going to be seeing work the way that it's normally done. And I think that, yeah, there is real value in us understanding the adaptations that people have to make um, when they're confronted with um, conflict in their different in their different goals. So you know we've got this productivity goal, um, but we've got this safety rule. But we've also got we know that there are a bunch of other barriers that are also in place to protect us. So maybe we can um, push into that safety boundary a little bit, and that will help us to meet this productivity goal. 
Um, but when we've got so many, um, so many barriers in place from a safety perspective where we've got those layered defences, um, it becomes that the system becomes really opaque. So people aren't able to see um, where there might already be weaknesses, where some of the um, upstream control measures may have already been um, been breached or been weakened. So um, what might be a deviation that's completely normal and normally leads to success for them um, in on that particular occasion um, because of other decisions made by other people that they have no way of knowing about that um, that particular deviation that they make on that particular day results in an adverse outcome. Um, and yeah, when we then go and investigate, we say, oh, well, you, you broke that particular rule. So that's why this happened. Um, not understanding that that's actually just a normal part of work for this group of people and how they actually, one of the approaches that they use to manage the goal conflicts that they're, they're confronted with on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I think one of the approaches that can be really useful is a debriefing type of an approach um, where at the end of a job, you might get the team together and actually say, all right, well, um, you know, what did we have to do what concessions did we have to make or what, um, you know, what conflicts were we, were we presented with where we had to find workarounds to be able to get the job done? Um, so taking that more proactive approach where we're not actually waiting for an accident to happen to tell us that, there's, um, that there are workarounds in place, but, you know, doing it at, at the end of, end of each job and saying, all right, what were the workarounds that, that we needed to do in this in this situation? And then taking that back and looking at it in more detail. Okay, so what is this potentially going to be a problematic workaround or is it something that we can actually start to say, yeah, this is this is how we need to do this in the future? Or looking at what are the goal conflicts that actually created the um the environment for this workaround to be required and can we actually do something to address those goal conflicts? So I think that's quite a proactive approach that you can take um, in looking at work as done but not as a way of just intervening and saying, no, that's not the way the procedure says to do it because, yeah, if you've got people who are then just in, in a place where they've got, you know, two conflicting goals and they can't make a decision about which way they need to go, um, because we do have those irreconcilable goals sometimes and we all, you know, we've all been in, um, in situations where we've experienced that. So if we can create an environment where it's normal to have that kind of a debrief at the end of a job and look for those opportunities to say, um, yeah, this was actually really um, an innovative solution that we came up with to resolve this problem um, and then go back and look at it and say, is this something that we can then adopt as a as an acceptable work practice or actually no this is really concerning um, because of all of these factors that maybe people were unaware of but we need to do something to resolve that goal conflict so that this workaround is no longer required so it's not just a matter of of watching how the work's done but it's a matter of then going back looking at it from the um the broader system perspective and then making some um some adjustments to other areas of the system Perfect. Uh, we just had the, the International Women's Day and my final question is related to kind of equality or, or, or so. Uh, we, unfortunately, uh, we have much more um, may, uh, men 
uh, in the safety professional, at least here, I don't know around the world, but I'm talking about Brazil. And I've, I'm, I'm a civil engineer and I'm coming from the civil work where uh, there is a really uh, not nice, let's put like this environment for women, uh, even more if they are in, in a safety professional uh, because they need to, to do some, to give some bad news, to say no sometimes and, and to kind of giving commands and he oriented men. And most of them are not used to this at home or, or, or so. Uh, I know you are getting the point. So what would be your, your advice to them even more now in this new view where we need to give, create psychological safety in the environment, give, give employees voice and everything, but it's even tougher uh, in many cases for women. Uh, how can you, I would say, <laughs> uh, the, the women uh, uh, overcome this barrier of the, the, the prejudice and, and not equality environment and still do a good job? Well, that's a really easy question for me to answer. Thank you, Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just I'll just solve everything in the next in the next three minutes. <laughs> um, I'm look, a feminist, I, so I always talking I always talking about equality. <laughs> yeah, no, look, and it's I'm it, it's good that we're having those those conversations. Um, I'm not going to pretend that it's easy, and I don't live in Brazil. I, you know, I don't have that lived experience of what it's like to be a woman in Brazil trying to work in, in this industry. Um, I think that um, I suppose my advice to women in safety is that you, you don't necessarily have to try to be more masculine um, if that makes sense. Um, I think that the attributes that are traditionally associated with femininity if i can if i can put it that way if that makes sense and recognizing that both men and women can have those attributes um and the same with attributes that are more typically considered masculine women can also have those attributes but i think um you know take advantage of your strengths whatever they might be so if you're really good at consultation if you're really good at listening to what people have got to say and doing that sort of reflective active listening if you're really good at helping to draw out and understand the problems that people are confronted with in the workforce then that's something unique in your skill set and in your capability that you can bring to the picture so instead of trying to push that aside and take on that really hyper-masculine um, veneer, um, just don't buy into that. Don't do it. Put it Put it to the side. Challenge it. It's unnecessary. Um, you can actually bring something unique and valuable to the organisation by taking a an approach of humble inquiry and working with the work groups to help them better define and understand the problems that they're facing and helping 
them to develop and identify the solutions that they feel are going to be most appropriate for them. So don't go in trying to be the police. Don't go in trying to tell them how to do their job. Go in and ask them about their job and ask them what would what would help them to do their job better, what would help them to make their job safer for them. Um, so take on that role of facilitator rather than the role of the police officer. Yes, perfect. We share this, this <laughs> opinion. And I had a, a, a situation where I was identifying that one of the girls that worked with me was trying to, to be one of us, like looking uh, more masculine, not in, in sexual way, but trying to be tougher and trying to show masculine characteristics. And I told her, no, we don't need, I don't need uh, another uh, Hugo. I need you and I, I need your skills. That's why you, you are hired, you know, you need your sensibility, your strength, your uh, different way of thinking. Uh, and there is a famous saying that, uh, that established that if we agree about everything, one of us is unnecessary, you know? So I need you bringing different opinion, different standing point. And fortunately she got it, but I'm, I, I guess that it was uh, like triggered by this conversation I had with her, giving her uh, psychological safety, if we can call this, to be herself, you know, so. Uh, but uh, thank you for the answer. And uh, I appreciate that we <laughs> share this opinion because I think we have, we'll be much better if we give a space for women being whoever they wanna be and, and others. Uh, you know, other kind of uh, minorities, uh, they can contribute a lot for all fields. Not only, I'm talking about safety because this is my field, but they can contribute for everything, everywhere, being themselves. Yeah, uh, and I think that there's also an element of, um, you know, giving men space to have those those attributes of of gentleness and and kindness um, that you know men don't actually have to be hyper masculine either. You know, there's not just one one type of man, um, and so allowing for that that range of of characteristics and attributes and and behaviours and traits, um, recognizing that they do appear in in both men and women, um, and that being okay. Perfectly said. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I missed this point, but. Uh, of course, men also suffer a lot of pressure to be always tough, to be always firm and to be, they don't cry, they don't have uh, fragilities and everything, but everybody knows it's a completely lie. Uh, also, I'd, I'd prefer uh, to work in a, in a place where, uh, you know, you can show your real emotions, you know, not hiding anything. You, so it's much better. And fortunately I have this opportunity, but I know that most of, some of my friends, unfortunately doesn't have, but we work <laughs> to create this kind of situation. Joel, I appreciated mm. so much our conversation. So I'm sorry for my light that failed, but I think the content is <laughs> kept <laughs> and I want you to as I always say it's marketing time please uh, give us give the viewers uh, your contacts if you want where they can find you what kind of services you can provide for companies of course uh, most of the viewers are Brazilian so uh, but I have a lot of people that watch us from Australia so feel free 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm quite active there and I'm always happy for for new connections and and to have a chat with people. Um, You can follow our Psych Health and Safety podcast as well. Um, If you like what you heard me talking about there in terms of psychological health and safety and want to learn a bit more about um, how you can apply a risk management approach to that in the workplace, then um, that's that's a good place to start. And we've had lots of um, really impressive guests on um, in the episodes that we've had to date. So there's lots of, of great information on there. Um, You're looking forward. Bye-bye. Thanks, Hugo. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.